Uh, one thing I've learned when we were travelling back, we travelled back from our holidays. We started, well, when we went down, we went obviously from Liverpool, drove all the way to, to uh, not Dover, but Folkestone, got on the Channel Tunnel, all the way straight through the middle of France, down to northern, <coughs> sorry, southern France, over the border, through a tunnel, uh, into northern Spain, and drove 500 miles straight down through Spain. So it was round about 1,480 miles. And what I learned on that trip, oh yeah, we had to come back as well, uh, so nearly 3,000 miles, a lot of driving. And the thing that I learned on the trip is sometimes it's important to have a sat-nav, and sometimes it's important to have a map book. You try and muddle through with either just one of them, and you could get lost. And I'll give you the example. We got totally and utterly, uh, the, the map book just wasn't detailed enough for us to better get through Rouen. Don't ever try and drive through Rouen without a sat-nav, you will get lost. Same goes with Bordeaux. We actually got pulled over in Bordeaux by a, a, a French policeman. He saw that we were British, he saw that I hadn't quite stacked the bikes on the back of my car right, and he saw that it was 7.45 in the morning, so he wanted a donut. So he pulled me over and fined me 45 euros. Got it. Uh, anyway, um, oh yeah, sat-navs and map books. Sat-navs are great because what they do is, on the sat-nav, for those of you who haven't got one, it just gives you a little map of about the next 250 yards and gives you an arrow and have some annoying voice going, at the next turning, go right, 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 or whatever, something like that. Which is great most of the time if you just want to go on autopilot, bury your head in it and off you go. But there are those times when you just sense that the sat-nav because you can only see a few hundred yards in front, it's just leading you astray. So around about 3.30 on Thursday morning, halfway up France, we go, we're just going round and round in circles in this little, uh, little village that looks like a little village out of, you know, a lower low, something like that. And we're like, this isn't quite right. So at which point we have to pull out the map book and go, right, no, there's the big picture. That's the way to go. So I wonder which one you're most like. Are you most like a sat-nav or a map book? Are you one of these people who you can always see the big picture, but the details seem to elude you? You've got a vague idea, you know, I know my life's supposed to be going in that direction, but I never seem to be able to get it to work quite right. Or are you one of the little details people who only sees about 200 yards? Maybe you see to the next time the money comes in the bank, or the next bad report for your kids at school, or for the next task you've got to get done at work, and suddenly you, you suddenly think, I'm buried in this, I just feel like I'm going round and round in circles, and I don't know what the big picture is. And I think quite often in our lives, we can tiptoe or, or t- uh, t- between the two, can't we? Sometimes we're very good on the big picture, and other times we're very good on, good on the small, but sometimes the big picture utterly eludes us, and sometimes the small just gets totally messed up. Sometimes in the life of a church as well, you get those times where, there's parts of the time where we just need to just plod on and carry on what we're doing. And there's other times when we need to go up to 50,000 feet, have a look down and say, what is it? Who are we? What are we about? Where are we going? What's the big direction? And so it's for that reason that we're digging into the book of Philippians. It's for this reason that we need to see that we're together for the gospel. I wonder, Fiona, whether you click the the thing once. And as we go through this, what we're going to be doing, it's great, the book of Philippians, because it does big picture and nitty-gritty at the same time. And we're just going to start in this first chapter. We're going to see the big picture of God's work that causes Paul to rejoice. But let me, let, me, let me just track back and tell you how their church got started. I've already told you that it was the first church to be planted in Europe. God, God gave Paul a call, said, 
come over to the Macedonian area, they came, he turned up in Philippi, it was a massive city, it, it was a Roman tributary, so they would, uh, they, they'd got uh, spe- special dispensations from the Roman emperor, the Caesar of the day, uh, it was a market town, it was a hubbub of activity, it was on the coast, and here a little Paul arrives with the gospel and starts telling people about Jesus, and what happens when you start telling people the gospel about Jesus? People get converted! And suddenly this church emerges, but it wasn't plain sailing, because the first, person, the first person who got converted was a lady called Lydia, who was like, into, I suppose she was like high fashion executive of the day, a dealer of purple cloth, the Bible tells us. She had a house big enough to hold a church in, which, you know, must be pretty big. And that was okay, people didn't mind her being converted, but then when the slave girl, who was basically the equivalent of um, a street walker down on London Road in the centre of Liverpool, she was one of those, she was an oppressed woman, she got converted, people started to pay attention. And then Paul got put chucked in jail for preaching the gospel, he got beaten and it was horrible, and all these new converts, there were probably more as well, saw some of this, and thought, what does this mean to be a believer? It means that you get treated like scum, because you're actually going against the authorities of the world, because you're saying there's a greater authority called Jesus. Paul wonderfully gets released because God does a miracle and shakes the jail. The jailer, who was probably an old, uh, an old military guy, um, he, was, he gets wonderfully converted and the ch- church continues to grow. And you look at the mix within the church family, the mix is where you've got a high fashion executive, who probably read the Financial Times, you've got uh, an ex-military guy who probably read the Star, and you've got this ex-slave girl who probably didn't read at all. And they're thrown together to be this church with one common thing or two. One is the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and the other is struggle and difficulty. And it's ten years on now, and Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel again in Rome. And um, Epaphroditus arrives, who's one of the members of the Philippian church, and in his pocket is a wadge of dough. See, Paul hadn't heard from them for a while. And suddenly he realises that they hadn't forgotten him, just as he never forgot them. They come bringing some money to help him in his time of need, and he just starts buzzing. Wow! God is at work. I worried, I fretted, but actually that gospel that was planted, that good news about Jesus that was planted, is growing. That church is going from strength to strength, despite the difficulties, despite the opposition, despite the fact that sometimes they struggle to get on with each other, despite the fact that living in Philippi and being in Christ is very, very difficult and always means you're in hot water. They're pressing on. And who does he thank? He thanks the Lord because of it. He can see the hand of God at work and suddenly he's filled with confidence. And so what he does in these first few verses here is he unpacks God's master plan of what's going on in the world. And if you're one of these people who wants to make sense of what is going on in the world, these few verses are so helpful because they show us three things. They show the work the Lord has done. They show the work the Lord is doing. And they show the work the Lord will do. You that? Past, present, future. What God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. Can there be anything more important for your life and mine? As you set your financial budget this week, as some of you go back to work, as some of you try to get the kids back in school and figure out how the monkeys are going to make it till Christmas, can there be anything more important than knowing what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do? Without that, our lives don't make any sense, do they? 
So let's have a look, a little look then. Good work the Lord has done. Let's read verses 1 through to 6 again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. What is the work the Lord has done? Answer, or look what they're called here, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Now there's always, it's never more than six or eight months is it before in, in the newspapers or on the telly we hear of some new person who's supposed to be being beautified because of things that they have done and achieved which means that they, they're on their, their stairway to be called, being called formally a saint. In fact sometimes what we have is we have church buildings around that are named after such and such. So in speak we've got St. Aidan's and we've got St. Ambrose and St. Christopher's. There seem to be saints everywhere, don't they? But it's interesting here that Paul's writing to this poxy little church that's got a former slave girl, a a rather grubby, murderous military guy, and some hoity-toity, high-fashion executive there, and he writes to them, and what does he call them? Saints. That's not a subset. He writes them and calls them saints. Now, the actual word saints, it it literally means set-apart ones. Set-apart. Made holy. Separate. Notice that it is not on the basis of their merit. It is on the basis of the work that God did. Do you get that? So our idea of saints is often wrong. Well, because they've done this and done this and done this and done this, they get declared a saint. But actually in the Bible, a saint is anybody whom God has set apart and declared holy and given a destiny and a plan and a calling to be part of his people forever. It's not on the basis of anything you do. Now, most of you who've been around this for long enough know that we've got a word in the Bible that describes that. It's that word, grace. And you better get it. Grace means that God does a work for you and in you. Grace does not mean what so many other people think Christian faith is about, that you do a work and then you get grace. You get something in return. No. God grabs a hold of lives to do a work in them. And Paul wants them to know that. Because once you know that, it means you will see yourself, your life, God, totally differently. You see, if you're somebody who says, I earn to become and be set apart, I look for something in my life to set me apart, then you're going to be worn out. Constantly looking over your shoulder, constantly worried, have I done enough to be in? Am I set apart enough? And God says, you can't do that. But I can do a work through my son, the Lord Jesus. If you are in him, you'll be set apart. Do you notice that? To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. And that speaks of a radical change of identity. That's what God has done in the past for anybody who's a believer. It was what God had done in the past for these believers in Philippi. He changed their identity. They used to be average Joe public in the streets... Um, a Philippian citizen. 
And it was something they wore with proud history record, uh, with pride. History records the fact that to be a Philippian under the care and authority of the Roman um, emperor, the Caesar, was a mark of standing. You could walk to other places in the empire and, oh, they're a Philippian. But here... It's changed around, isn't it? Actually, your status is not that you're under the, the guardianship of the emperor, but that you are in Christ Jesus. You're in his gang. Notice all they are now is they're in Christ's gang at Philippi. They've had an identity shift. The thing that defines them now is not that they are at Philippi, it is that they are in Christ. So if you're a believer here today, you may be at a particular job, or you might be a full-time mum, or you may be a football player, or or a really good karaoke singer, or you may have um, that kind of car, or you may define yourself by all those things, and Paul says, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, Because of what God has done in the past, you have a total new definition written over your life. If you are in Christ, you're in him, and all those other things are details. And can I tell you that for them, if you were in Christ and at Philippi, you were in hot water. Because if all the people around them were living, saying, the emperor's our lord, and he calls the shots, and we will pay him off, what they'd do is they'd walk down the street and it was just expected there would be these little shrines every now and again. And it'd be just a way of showing respect and honour and a declaring of your identity. They'd put a little bit of incense on the, the altar down the street and it was just on the way to work. And they'd just do that. Just That's who we are. We're Philippians and we honour the emperor as, as God. What happens when you become a Christian when you're in Christ? And you're walking with your same bunch of mates to work. They all pull out a bit of incense on there and you don't, what happens then? You've got your incense, you want some of mine, but no, it's okay. What do you mean it's okay? It's the thing that defines us. Caesar insists that we do that. If we don't, all that we live under is under threat. What do you mean it's okay? Well, I'm a Christian now. What? You're one of these people who say Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar? Sorry, mate, I'm not going to be, sorry, you'll have to car share with somebody else tomorrow. Do you get the idea? And so if you are in Christ at Philippi, it's going to mean that sooner or later there will be a clash. Can I tell you that you, if you are in Christ at Speak, there's going to be a clash, isn't there? There's going to be a clash sooner or later. You see, it could be just, it could be about the, way, the things that you live for. It could be that you don't engage in all the gossip, like everybody else does and speak about people behind their back and people start to suspect you because you won't do that it could be because on a Sunday you say rather than go out for a wild party on a Saturday night you say actually no I'm not going to do that I'm not going to get hammered because Christ is my Lord I want to be sharp as I possibly can come a Sunday morning so I can be encouraging other people and worshipping him on a Sunday it could be that you want different sets of things for your kids it could be that in the workplace with all the political correctness that's going on and the acceptance of all kinds of different lifestyles, you get looked down upon, criticised, or even ostracised, because you stand and lay hold of what the Lord says is right, good, and true. Do you see that? So here's Paul, he's rejoicing that there's this bunch of believers who despite being against all the odds, they are living this new identity because of what the work that God has done. See it there in verse 6. Being confident of this, says Paul, you've stuck it this far, that he who began a good work in you, he will carry it on. What he has begun, he won't stop. You should be encouraged. So if you are somebody here today who is hanging on to the the hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, even though it's been difficult, 
Wow! It's a sign that God is at work amongst in you and amongst us. And notice here, I love this in this, there's no personal pronouns, it's all corporate. So when Paul thinks of the Philippian church, he doesn't think of a building and he doesn't think of a church service, he thinks of a gang of people together. He thinks of, he just, oh tell me about the church of Philippi, that, that that person, that person, that person, that person, that person, that person, that person. That's what he thinks. He thinks people because God is calling to him, setting apart saints in Christ Jesus in various places. So that's the work the Lord has done. It's through Jesus and it's through his grace and Paul looks at the gift that's been sent and he sees evidence that what they value most is that call that God has put upon their lives. They've sent money to get him on the road, to get him telling more people so more people can hear about the gospel. He set them apart, making them holy for him. And as I thought on this and as as I prepared for this and as I was away at the time, I was just getting dead excited. Because what Paul saw in them, I see in our church family. Oh, it's imperfect, just like it was in Philippi. But I see people in our church family who at personal cost to themselves have stuck it out and even when they didn't want it, didn't want to, they've taken the time to go around and encourage somebody. They've turned up to help at a work. They've cooked a meal at Welcome Club. They've arrived early to welcome people. They've stepped out in faith and spoken to their neighbour, although they were very scared to do it. They've put money in the kitty towards getting more gospel work and buying more tracts and doing all that. And so should we be confident that what God has started amongst us, he'll carry on? Yeah. But are we happy with what we got? No, we want even more, don't we? We want even more. So that's second. First of all, it's the work that God has done. Here's the work the Lord is doing. Let me read verses 6 through to 8. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel... All of you share in the God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Okay? So he's at work to make, this is God, he's at work in that church family to make those Philippians what he has set them apart to be. Now I realise that as I say that, and I say, well hold on, he's at work in Speak Baptist Church to make you and me what he has called us to be. I realise that for some of us in this room, that terrifies us. God at work? And some of us, it terrifies us because, well, to be honest with you, you're not sure you can trust him. God changing me? What's he going to change me into? A Jesus freak. Ah, that's bad. Can I tell you that from a distance, and I'm hiding behind the pulpit, and I say this, I know enough about most of you in this room to say you need all the help you can get. No offence. And you know enough about me to know I need even more help than you. Yeah? So if you're one of these people, oh, what will, what will God change me into? I tell you, anyone's better than what you are at the moment. And so rejoice that the Lord is, well, it says there, doesn't it? He, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on. He's going to take you somewhere. And because he's the gracious Lord who calls you, who forgives you of your sin, who gives you a new identity, we can trust him. And if some people are saying, well, I don't want him to, others of you sitting in this room are checking back and thinking you've been walking this 
rode with the Lord Jesus for a long time and you find it difficult to see change in your life and you're almost terrified that he won't do any work. And some of you, every now and again, you'll pluck up courage and you'll speak to one of your mates and say, have you actually seen much change in me? Because sometimes the more you try to grow in grace, the harder it is to see it in your own life. And some of you are terrified that actually God might not fulfill his promise. But what does the Apostle Paul here say? You can't doubt God. What God has started, he will finish. If he has called you and made you his own, he's going to take you somewhere. And although so, the, the problem is sometimes we doubt God's ability to do it because actually what we count on is our ability to change us. When actually in the gospel what we do is God comes to work in us as we uh, meet him in his word, in the power of the spirit, he changes our hopes, he changes our affections, he changes our commitments and then we cooperate with what he's doing. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God's going to do it, then you flick over and you find yourself in chapter 2 verse 13 and he says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Do you get this? What happens is, the Lord is at work, lighting up our hearts with the wonder of his gospel, and we cooperate with it. We cooperate with it. It's wonderful, isn't it? God does the work, but we do the work. How does that work? I don't know, but it does. Have an expectancy that God is going to be at work changing us. And Paul here is rejoicing because he sees evidence that the Lord is at work in them. Have you any idea the value? You are encouraged day after day on the telly and in magazine to try this strategy to change yourself and this strategy. And at the end of the day, they're just a list of things that sooner or later... you don't live up to them, they will beat you down. And the Lord comes in and says, I will have a plan that I will work out in you so that in a year, two years, ten years, you won't be the same person. And I have the joy when I was thinking about this, when I was aware, I, I was running through names, I was running through faces. I was running through your names and your faces going, oh yeah. And the problem is with me, I tend to like, oh, there's still got a long way to go in that area. But actually, no, no, no. Look, they're standing for Jesus. They're taking their sin seriously. They're wanting to hear his word. They're doing this. And they stepped out in faith. And when they could have done that, they did that. Wow. God is at work. He ain't finished. But he is at work now to make us what he's called uh, called us to be, set apart people. Which immediately tells us church is going to be a messy place. Some of you have had your bubble burst, haven't you? Because when you first started coming, oh, I can come and sit with the nice people. And for a little while, maybe about six and a half minutes, you're, I'm with the nice people. No, you're amongst the hospitalised people who need a saviour. Okay, and the problem with this sin hospital is it's not just that the fighting's out there, it's in here as well. So we're always shooting at each other, or we're passing on our diseases one with another. And you begin to wonder, how on earth can this thing work? But it's the Lord who is at work, and he's going to complete it. So can I give you permission to be thoroughly under-impressed with your church partners, your church family, your partners in the gospel, but to be thoroughly expectant that God is going to make something of us. And what's his strategy? Put us together in a mix. What is his strategy and his way of changing us? Bung us together for the gospel. You know, 
you, you know how this works. There's these, um, you used to buy these old toy things. Me and Bethany have been talking about this not so long ago. These toy things where what you do is you, you just basically go and get a, a, a big wadge of gravel. It's got all different kinds of rock sizes and sand and muck and grit and stuff like this. You used to be able to buy these things. And it's sort of like a, a centrifuge system that, that spins it around and sorts it all out. So you chuck this big wadge of sludge of gravelly muck. You bung it in this thing, put in a bit of water, spin it, leave it going, wake up in the morning, go and have a look, and you pull out stuff and you've got these jewels. And you can like make, it's a kid's toy, you can sort of like make little jewellery, little rings and little earrings and all this stuff. Where did they come from, Daddy? Duh. They've just spent 12 hours being bashed around off one another. All the rough edges knocked off. And some of you are like, church isn't supposed to be difficult. And the Bible says, yes it is. Because it's as you get your, well it's the only place where you're going to be safe enough to have your rough edges knocked off. And I know some of you run away from that. I'll knock my own rough edges off. You reckon? No, it's this funny deal in the New Testament, isn't it, where some people say, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. It's too messy. Or Jesus is reliable, but church people aren't. I think I'll just have me and Jesus and a nice personal faith. And unfortunately, it don't work like that, because always in the New Testament, you get Jesus and his church. It's two for the price of one package deal, not separate. Because the way the Lord works in us, the way he's doing something in us now, is by making us partners together for the gospel. Together for the gospel. That's his choice. That's his strategy. Can I be as bold as to say this? I know you'll bump into people who will say, look, I can be a Christian without being at church. And I'll say, no, you can't. You can't. You cannot grow. You cannot live what you're called to because he is called a set-apart people who together are shown the excellencies of his grace and demonstrating the world to the world that the only way for humanity to be put back together is by being under him. Do you get that? So what is the work the Lord is doing? Well, it's in the bump and grind of the relationships as we irritate, upset, let one another down, encourage, speak truth to each other, pray for each other, and see our flaws that God is at work changing us. And I love the fact here that it's not just a functional thing, it's a personal thing. Can you see it here in verse 7 through to 8? It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. You see, what was happening is, it doesn't come out very clearly in this translation, but what's happening is it seems to be that the same struggle that Paul had when he first came to Philippi of speaking the gospel, getting locked up, tortured, treated badly, kicked out, disadvantaged. Now, as he hears the news of what's going on, it's happening to them. And so he says that, you know, we share in the same grace. He, he, he describes it as grace as being put through the mill. And he looks on them with love. He, so I suppose it's a way of saying this, is he sees they're more than just partners, they're brothers. In fact, countless times through this letter he describes them as brothers. Because we're related. If you're a believer who's stood through the gospel, who's received Christ as your king, we are related. And it's through him. So church is not like a petrol station when you come in to fill up without relating to anybody else on the forecourt. That's not what church is. And church is not like a cinema where the show will go on whether you are there or not. Church isn't just functional. Church is a place where we have a claim on each other because Jesus has laid claim to us. We belong to each other, in a sense. 
And so that's what God is doing amongst us. And Paul is rejoicing that he sees that they are following the same pattern and they are put it, they're putting themselves together for the gospel. And he's made up that he sees God is doing this in them and it's a beautiful thing. And thirdly and finally, I've just got to finish very, very quickly because time is gone here. Um, what's the work of the work the Lord will do? Well, it's mentioned there in verses 9 to 11. We're going to look more at this over the prayer meetings as it comes up. Um, but in verses 9 to 11, let me read it for you again. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. To start with, remember I mentioned that the maps thing? Have you got a big map, a big picture? And I realise some say, look, I'm not a big picture kind of person. I just get through the next day, the next two, three days. I, I can't see much further than that. And you would neither, Steve, if you were, uh, got some of the pressures that I've got. And I want to say, yeah, granted. But I also want to say a sound, a, a note of warning here. Because if you're always looking inward and always looking small, that actually shrinks you. You become shrunk as a person. And some of you know those kind of people who maybe through pride, they're, they're just so into their own little world that they're just very shallow and narrow people. You see, life without an ambition or life with the wrong ambition crumbles you. It crushes you. It sucks you inwards. It lowers your horizons. It saps you of life. And usually you're the last person to know. And that's why these verses I've just read are so encouraging because Paul lays out a set of ambitions and an expectation of God, what God will do. We've already picked up on it in verse, verse 6, that what God has begun in them, he will carry on until the day of Christ Jesus. But here Paul says it even more clearly. He says, and this is my prayer, this is my ambition, this is what I go to God for you for, that your love may abound more and more in wishy-washy sentimental feelings. Is that what it says there? just in case some of you were thinking that's what that's not what it says okay it's really interesting how does not how does love have knowledge well, remember knowledge is a relational word and we're going to find out more about this as we move through the book of philippians but you're going to find that actually if you want to grow in love you don't sit there thinking happy thoughts about people what you do is you think more about how it is you're going to love people and what will motivate you and equip you to love. You look at what Christ has done for you and where you're heading with Christ and it, it reshapes you so you can figure out how to lovingly do what is best. A number of times I've had conversations with you or other people and say, well, I always want to do what's best for my kids. There's nobody in this room who says, do you know what? I want to set out for second best today. I want to have second best in my life. And here Paul says, right, what I want for you is I want the Lord to answer this prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern, figure out what is best in light of what? What God's going to do in the end, which is this wonderful, glorious day of Christ. You see it there in verse 10. Blameless until the day of Christ. Back there in verse 6. Until the day of Christ. Paul's saying that actually there's a reality that is awaiting all of us that should define and shape the way we think now. What is best will be what, what lives in keeping with that day coming. You see, you may already have thought through what's the best way for me to spend my day or my week or my next term or my next five years if it hasn't taken account of the fact that one day Jesus Christ is coming back 
to rule gloriously for all eternity, one day you will need him and you will be asked the question, what have you done with the privilege you've been given? If you don't try and figure out your now in light of that, you're on a bum steer. And so Paul says, look, I just beg God every day that you lot will be able to see in the light of that day what is best. And isn't that what we want to be praying as a church this week? Can you think of the zillions of things we could get busy doing as a church family? We could start a, an allotment. Um, we could do Kaylee dancing every week. Um, we could do clear-ups, all good things. We could do, um, we could do wine tasting evenings. Um, quad bike track. How are we going to know whether any of those things are worth doing or not? We have to evaluate it. Pray. Please help us discern what is best in light of the fact that you're coming back. And in case any of you are sitting there wondering what the answer is, Paul's going to be very clear that actually it's to keep on doing what they've been doing. Keep letting the gospel grow in you and keep pressing out telling more people about Jesus. What's that going to look like for us as a local church? Well, we're not too sure. That's why we're going to have a prayer week, isn't it? Lord, we know that you one day are coming back. Please help us to know as a church what's best for us to do. Please help me to know what my part in this is going to be. What's best for me to use the time, opportunities, money that I have got. Lord, I know the telly's always telling me I'm supposed to have this plan or that plan or I need to eat this kind of yoghurt if my life is to be fulfilled. Wear these kind of pants or go on that kind of holiday or live in that kind of neighbourhood. But I want you, Lord, please show me what my life should look like now in the light of that glorious day when Jesus comes back. Because that's what you're going to do in the future. So let me ask you as I finish, have you got the same joy that Paul has? That though he's banged up in prison, he's excited. The big thing for him is God's work. What God has done setting people apart through Jesus and calling them by his grace. What God is doing, the people in the church growing and pressing out with their faith, the fact that one day Jesus will come back and that is the ultimate reality we all face. Have you got joy in that? In God's work? Well, one way to express that is going to be through this. This is for people who've got joy in God's work. If you're somebody who's not too sure here today and you're not sure whether it's for you or not and you still make it up your mind, that's fine. Uh, what we'd ask you to do is let that pass before you. Um, but what this is, is what well, we're going to see in just a minute, is this is our way of responding and saying, God's work is my ultimate joy. He's working the past for me through Jesus. He's ongoing work in me as I wait for when he comes back again. So we're going to sing a song about Jesus' work, uh, the work of God through Jesus Christ in the past. Jesus Christ, I think about your sacrifice. You became nothing, poured out to death. Let's stand and sing together.